And welcome. This is the podcast of TechEU and another interview special episode recorded in Helsinki. I am Andre Degler, the host and producer of the show. This episode is kindly sponsored by Google Cloud for Startups, and it is part of an exclusive interview series with prominent people in tech, which we recorded live at Slush 2019. If you don't want to miss the rest of the interviews, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. Here's a taste of the interviews that we've prepared for you today looking for an absolute truth in a complicated environment in a world where you know information is being shared distributed used maliciously or accidentally lost and breached it's very complex so in three minutes you can really understand what's happening and why whales we should be spending more money in preserving whales because they help clean up co2 emission the thing that's frustrated me in the last 20 years is the back-end architectures and platforms and systems to store, control, secure, assure privacy of that data, they really haven't changed. So to kick off today's episode, I've got a conversation with Vivian Chan, the CEO and founder of Sparrow, and that's S-P-A-R-R-H-O. Let's check it out. So uh, before we go anywhere uh, to the company that you founded, or anything, let's, let's just talk about you first. So what, uh, what did you do before founding Sparrow? So my family is originally from Hong Kong and I grew up in Australia. And actually in Australia was where I ended up uh, after my undergrad dabbling into early stage uh, investing. Mm-hmm. So I was part of a VC fund that right. was actually investing into life science spinoffs from three universities in Australia. This Um, is interesting. (laughs) So that's kind of actually the first time I hit on the problem that I actually ended up solving for Sparrow. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have that idea, but I had the problem because as an investor, I was being brought a whole bunch of new research in areas that I didn't necessarily cover in kind of PhD level in my undergrad. Um, So, but yeah, I was the person who had to go and search for information, try to understand research papers or understand what the latest status quo of was in oncology all the way to CRISPR-Cas to a whole wide range. And that was when I was like, okay, this is a big pain problem for me. <laughs> I thought it was mainly for me. Right. Um, but I didn't realize that actually science was not that accessible and digestible. But it was also early enough then to know that science matters not just to the scientists, but other people also need to make informed decisions out of science. Right. And what happened next? Uh, then I was very fortunate to get into Cambridge and did my PhD in X-ray crystallography. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> um, it's biochemistry. Right. Um, but we make pretty crystals. Mm-hmm. And we would then actually shoot them. We're using X-ray beams and look at the diffraction pattern and create a really fancy three-dimensional structure of what the protein could look like. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. And actually, um, it, was, it was really cutting-edge research. So right. I, I was at... Uh, very fortunate to be surrounded by some top scientists, but also at Cambridge was also um, surrounded by really like-minded entrepreneurs. 
And because Cambridge has a bubbling entrepreneurial circle, there was also investors and angels and companies. Uh, ultimately, I ended up getting the opportunity to also meet my co-founder, Carl Nilu, and uh, through kind of a uh, incubator and now a VC called Entrepreneur First. Mm -hmm. um, but we were one of their very first kind of guinea pig patches. Um, and uh, that was a lot of fun because that core group of 30 that they kind of handpicked are mm -hmm. some of the really best friends that I have as well because they're all really scientists or uh, engineers who wanted to explore entrepreneurship before it became a mainstream career choice, if you could call right. it that. <laughs> um, so what time was that? We started the business in 2013. 2013. Yeah, yeah. But we spent a couple of years actually working on the R&D side of whether or not we can actually even build what we've built, like augmented intelligence content engine. Is that even possible? Right. Okay, so let's get to Sparrow then. Uh, what is it? What does it do? Whom is it for? So what we do at Sparrow is to democratize scientific knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do that by using that augmented intelligence content engine where it actually aggregates about 60 million pieces of scientific research and then actually uh, recommend and then curate um, with PhDs. So we also have about 133,000 PhDs globally um, who work with us uh, to then curate and summarize what's happening in cutting-edge research to make them really digestible content. So one of the products is called like three-minute digest. Mm -hmm. So in three minutes, you can really understand what's happening and why whales, we should be spending more money in preserving whales because they help clean up CO2 emission. Um, and it's this really cool, exciting discoveries that uh, we want to then be able to push. So we work with companies and brands um, who really care about science um, and use the output kind of educated information to target educated consumers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you use both artificial intelligence and uh, human expert curators to basically navigate through all the published uh, body of uh, knowledge. Correct. Taking really complex information, synthesizing it and creating digestible content. Right. And... Uh, What's the business model like? I suppose you have to pay to this uh, 130,000 PhDs who work for you? Uh, so we have an incentive. So, But also we actually have uh, a lot of the PhDs who are on our platform really do care about science communication. Mm -hmm. And um, we work with them and we have a small editorial team who actually also works with some of their Uh, we have kind of have monthly researcher prizes, mm -hmm. um, the best uh, pin boards and the best summaries. Uh, we award them with uh, travel bursary grants to the conferences. Um, so, and those ones we tend to actually um, give them a guidance on how you can communicate your science and take some really complex stuff and, and be able to communicate it to a wider audience. And we actually do end up having some people who say, thank you for that because now I can, my parents actually know what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's already making small uh, incremental impact. Nice. And uh, what do you sell and whom do you sell it to? So we actually do sell different product offerings mm -hmm. um, for companies that want to use science and real evidence in their content marketing. So that's right. a whole range. So if you want to use science and actually educational information to target new leads, so B2C companies, 
then we have a different offering there. If you want to use it to nurture and engage your existing and potential clients, that's also a different offering that we have. Um, so at the moment, we're working with pharmaceutical companies and a lot of wellness brands, uh, looking specifically in femtech and also fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a load of really interesting research out there um, that, for example, fertility, we, we, we've been pushing out stuff like bone marrow research that can actually potentially help females stay pregnant for longer. Um, and it's those kind of really interesting educational but digestible content that then attracts the right kind of educated consumer groups um, to uh, you know, reach out and look at potentially being a lead for a company. So are you selling content itself? So like you're already selling uh, like the pieces that can be published by these uh, uh, customers of yours? Yeah, so it's a very interesting kind of uh, content package, mm-hmm. um, but it's packaged differently depending on what the client wants. Um, but the umbrella, overall umbrella is really bringing science into real content marketing in this digital age for educated consumers. Oh, this is really this is really interesting. And uh, what uh, sort of financial uh, stats can you uh, can you disclose? Like, uh, are you growing? Uh, how fast are you growing? What the revenue is like, and so on and so forth. Um, so, on the revenue side, we're relatively young because actually we wanted to make sure the R and D engine works. Um, but the pharma and the wellness is our very first kind of uh, streams. Mm-hmm. Um, the we've raised about three million US dollars to date, um, and we will be looking at more fundraising next year. What do you need the money for? We will be looking at the money to scale, um, mainly on the pharma and wellness side, mm-hmm. um, and also ultimately to bring on another new industry and sector because our engine does all sciences. So right. we can also start doing things like sustainability and like the whales, for example. Uh, that would be very interesting for a lot of other brands and consumer groups. So what's the engine itself like? Does it index all the published research and then... Uh kind of churns some uh, topics that the humans then look at? Yeah, so it, it does the irrigation elements. It indexes all of the cutting-edge research. Um, we have about 40 to 50,000 sources that mm-hmm. we check on a regular basis. And then we actually do the recommendations, and that surfaces recommendations to our PhD network. Right. And then the PhDs themselves add another level of non-linear connection points because the Humans are still better at making those connection points. So, for example, being able to kind of say that this math, ma- mathematical equation in this paper could potentially be relevant to an agricultural problem mm-hmm. and tying them together into, they kind of pin them into what we call a pin board. And that really sends signals that these two papers might be more relevant than uh, it otherwise suggests because it doesn't have references or citations linked mm-hmm. to each other. And then obviously, the new layer on that is the summarization. Um, and now because of the hundreds of um, three-minute digests generated by our PhD network, uh, we can start doing some cutting-edge kind of algorithms and we're starting to work with some researchers on the NLP side uh, to maybe have machines um, actually do a lot more auto-summarization right. by training from the three-minute digests that our communities generated. It's interesting. And who writes the pieces that you end up selling to these uh, uh, pharma companies? For all brands, it depends on kind of the topic they are interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, the companies have no influence around the content that we create. 
So we remain ourselves as an independent third party mm-hmm. um, because the brands cannot interfere with what the research says. <laughs> right. um, so, and then that's where all the research community gets involved. But also, we do have an editorial team who then actually cleans up and polishes and makes sure it is of high quality. Nice. So, in order to index all this published research, you have to have. Access to all this published research, and that is often pretty expensive. How to deal with that?、Um, so we were very fortunate. We started off the whole project with a really good、um, agreement with the British Library,、mm-hmm. um, but also what we started realizing is that we don't necessarily need all of the research sitting behind the paywalls. Just the metadata itself was already relevant for us to arrogate,、mm-hmm. and then we could then push it to our PhD community, who are already in universities, who then actually will be able to start, you know, training the algorithms. Like, okay, is the machines right or wrong?、Um, and and ultimately, at the end of the day, even the pin boards、uh, that are curated by the researchers are starting to become interesting reading lists. For mm-hmm, other mm-hmm, researchers,、mm-hmm. especially other researchers from, I say, developing countries where they don't have the same kind of funding to pay for all the paywall access, they can then actually look at some another PhD from a more well-funded university、uh, to kind of say, okay, well, these are the five papers I really should read, and and it's much more cost-effective that way too. Okay, interesting. So basically, your and、uh, customers don't need. To get access to the initial academic research, and、uh, your PhD network has this access through their universities in most cases. Correct. I think a lot of the times, my grandmother, for example, wouldn't have any interest trying to read a research paper, <laughs>、um, but she would be more interested in knowing that the three-minute digest, whether it be in a written form, we might start thinking in the future for turning that into speech. Into Alexa and also into chatbots, make、right. it even more user-friendly. But knowing that those digestible content actually is supported by evidence, which are the real research papers. So if you wanted to, you can always click through and read the research papers.、Right. So all the links are there. Right. But at the end of the day, it does seem that. In a way, you benefit from the work of the scientific community that creates the research. So, how do you give back? Yeah. So, I think the key thing is that the research community have always been wanting to give some sort of communication and impact.、Um, at the moment, all of their research papers are behind paywall, and when you do actually submit, you also sign off your IP to the publisher. Um, which is、uh, which is what the status quo is right now,、um, and right now、um, those are kind of behind paywalls. As opposed to if you're trying to pin, and people, the scientists are using the pin boards as much more of a portfolio. So you're starting to see it as a portfolio of I am also a thought leader in my own space. I don't need to create a LinkedIn account because in LinkedIn you can write whatever you want. But using a Sparrow pin board, you do showcase that I do know the space by pinning these eight to ten or twelve articles. I'm writing a and synthesizing my research in a way that's much more digestible, and it's also not behind paywall. Right. So let's get back to Sparrow as a startup, and、uh, talk about、uh, the funding experience. So this is coming from Entrepreneur First, as you mentioned, right? So how?、Uh, How profound was the impact of Entrepreneur First on uh, what uh, and、uh, what Sparrow ended up being? Oh, great! Because that's where I met my co-founder.、Right. <laughs> um, also, the opportunity 
um, for me to be an entrepreneur. I didn't choose to be an entrepreneur, actually. Um, and Entrepreneur First at that point was also a non-for-profit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a venture capital yet. Um, but be- And they themselves were entrepreneurs trying to figure out how to turn this into a program. Um, so I felt like the whole experience was great. I also got introduced to a massive network, um, some of which have turned into investors, mentors, uh, lifelong friends of mine, and ultimately now also like my co-founder. And through that process, but also I was also the president of uh, Cambridge Ent- University Technology and Enterprise Club. So that also enabled another network combined with the London network, uh, which has been really supportive on, on where we got to in Sparrow. Right. And how big is your team now? Uh, the team is relatively small because actually we're under 20 people. Right. But because we have a great network of PhDs. Um, so we really want to be lean in-house and work closely with the researchers. We also invite the researchers to come um, to our offices. We right. might be thinking more of a community-type play in the future. Uh, and this is also where the fundraising comes into place, um, allowing for much more of the communities to hold it, for us to hold events, get the researchers, the winners of the researcher prize together, um, and hold local events that way too. Right. This is, this is really interesting. So what are the plans then uh, in general for Sparrow? Like, where do you see it in uh, two, five, ten years? Like, well, how do you want to expand? Um, so ultimately, the near term is making sure that we can actually scale in terms of the commercial side, that proving that brands and companies do care about using um, digestible science and educational information um, to communicate that. Um, but the longer term plan is that actually by using this B2B2C methodology, we are trying to democratize science bit by bit by allowing for a new set of user group, whether it be educated audiences in all different sectors, to eventually understand what's happening in science in a, in a media fashion that is super accessible to them. Um, ultimately, my mm-hmm. lo- <laughs> kind of long term goal is maybe one day someone like my grandmother can understand what's happening in Alzheimer's or whatever she wants in her own language. But that's a very, very long vision. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you competing with in this, uh, in this field? Uh, so there are different kind of competitors on the content engine side mm-hmm. for irrigation, curation, and summarization. Less so in the scientific research sphere. Um, there's more competitors who do it in other legal or in um, government or financial data. Um, in terms of competitors on the kind of content marketing, it would be traditionally your agencies or also companies who generate quantity, uh, uh, kind of a lots of um, leads generation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a mixture hybrid of marketing companies as well as consultancies. Uh, but what we do is we're sitting in the intersection of both. Interesting. Uh, do you only work with the English language at the moment? At the moment, yes. But the beauty of it is that the PhDs themselves are multilingual. <laughs> so one step at a time, when we do feel like we've tackled summarization, we will try for <laughs> translation. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, Vivian, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, good luck with Sparrow. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, for the second part of this episode, here is something that doesn't really happen on this podcast very often. We are going to talk about blockchain. 
well, not me personally, thank God, but my co-host Natalie Novik, who interviewed Ian Smith, the CEO and founder of Gospel Tech. And yes, she also asked why he chose this name for his startup. Let's check it out. Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us today at Slush and taking the time. Thank you, Natalie. Slush is amazing. It's my first Slush. And, you know, I've, I've been on the kind of tech circuit for many years. But to come here and kind of have that like super early stage and growth stage vibe is so exciting. It's really an honor to be here and share the experience. So many other founders were kind of struggling with a lot of the things and enjoying a lot of the things that we are at Gospel. Yeah, and I think something that Slush does really well is kind of bring this community of really like-minded people together and really you feel that. There's a huge empathy. Let's kind of pivot from the caring culture and uh, to uh, caring about consumers. And that's something that Gospel Tech really um, does very well. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about it and um, how, um, how this whole thing got started? Yeah, totally. So, you know, kind of what I and the team have identified is there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a number of mega trends as we call them which we kind of see as this impre- increasing understanding of the value of data and information and i think that as we move from intuition to data-driven businesses and process everybody kind of understands whether it's a you know an airplane uh whether it's a human pilot or a machine whether it's oncology or x-ray data whether it's being introduced you know uh analyzed by algorithms or people you know we kind of at this scaling transition as a as a as a culture that we're moving to data-driven repeatable technology mm-hmm. so the underlying data set has to be trusted and assured to make sure that transition is you know appropriate and in line with what businesses and, and people kind of need so that that trend and then i think that you know we are you know, not as exciting as many startups here, but we are an enterprise B2B technology company. We're selling to large companies who are struggling with the, a number of data challenges. So, uh, you know, what, what we're kind of focused on in that data area is where sensitive data or valuable information is being consumed in the, in this world of increasing digitization, moving from human intuition to data, but also in this decentralization mode. And I think if there's one thing that kind of where our real differentiation is, it's where processes and these data challenges are by their nature distributed and decentralized. So, you know, I kind of firmly believe organizational structures, you know, globalization of business process, supply chains, all of these kind of, these are manifests of a decentralized world that we're moving into. So I think that those two trends of data and decentralization are really the two core pillars of what we've built with Gospel, the third one being the technology that we've used, which is mm-hmm. an underlying blockchain architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're kind of the three you know, points of the triangle, which is really you know, what and why we're doing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before aerospace, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. These are some, some of your customers are That's working right, on yeah. some of the biggest challenges That's and right. the biggest problems in yeah. the world. So, so it's unfortunately, I, we started off with a platform concept where we kind of built an underlying backend technology then you know, applied it to the problems that we knew and they have manifested themselves in our, you know, first, you know, 10, 20 clients. They're all in that uh, pharmaceutical, aerospace, manufacturing kind of area where by the nature of those large global businesses that are regulated. Mm -hmm. So information, whether it's information about people or parts or systems tend to be highly valuable and Mm -hmm. sensitive when it's moving across 
you know, organizational, regulatory or geographic boundaries. Mm-hmm. So the privacy and the security of the of data in these spaces is so vital. Yeah. And 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 you really came to to blockchain as a really early adopter. Oh yes. <laughs> I, I my so this is my second uh, startup company, and I think maybe I overestimated my ability to move a market. Uh, you know, I think you know my my kind of story very quickly was I was very fortunate to be kind of leading the first generation of distribution and decentralization, which was you know we call it the internet. You know, in the late nineties, we were taking centralized services like banking, uh, uh, like you know uh, retail, and we would turn them into these digital services. I was part of the team. At HSBC, as we built the first kind of digital banking platform, where we where we moved from you know branches with cables to central databases uh, and human uh, and gate transactions to you know the HTTP front end to your financial data uh, and 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 the distribution of you know consumption of financial services and like if anything, I would say in the last you know twenty years, which yeah, scares me to see how quickly that time's gone by. <laughs> you know, the proliferation of distributed financial services. Yeah. Is phenomenal mm-hmm. it's deeply integrated into mm-hmm. components the you know the mobile experience the user orientation of financial services is phenomenal there's some digital banks that i now wholly use because you know their the ability to help you know manage money and services is fantastic but the thing that's frustrated me in the last 20 years is the back-end architectures and platforms and systems to store control secure assure privacy of that data they really haven't changed. Yeah. So I believe, you know, we can see the proliferation of distributed consumption of yeah. services, mm-hmm. but the underlying infrastructure sits at the back end is relative. It's, it's, you know, it's organically developed, but it's relatively unchanged for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that's a huge opportunity yeah. uh, to move that forward mm-hmm. uh, for the good of, you know, consumer trust, organizational uh, you know, engagement, the speed and efficiency in which those large organizations can engage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we see that manifest itself in accelerating a, you know, a drug trial from six months to six weeks, or the acceleration of, you know, f- problem determination in an aircraft engine from 20 days to three minutes, mm-hmm. you know, it, it makes me excited about the potential of what we're building. Yeah. And when we have a, a, Backend architecture, data architecture that hasn't evolved much in 20 right. years. Yeah. That's something that is highly vulnerable. Highly vulnerable. And, and, you know, I think that there was a concept of shadow IT, but what we see is, you know, data sharing or where data needs to cross boundary happening on, you know, uh, uh, open source uh, databases in the cloud, mm-hmm. point to point connections where you send data then lose control. Uh, there's very little concept of retaining control once you've emailed a spreadsheet or shared a piece of R&D data. And we see a lot, and I have had some phenomenal customer engagements in the last two days, uh, a lot of manufacturing where they're sending 3D printing designs as a data mm-hmm. asset and then trying to track how many times that design has been printed. Mm-hmm. Then we see a lot of potential vulnerability at the point where that data is being consumed and manifested into physical parts. Yeah. So the licensing of those are challenging. So, you know, I guess the ability to retain control over those digital yeah. data assets oh, when that information is no longer within your, you know, traditional data center is a, it's a game changer uh, mm-hmm. for these abilities, these companies' ability to adopt these digital and global practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, these are big problems to, to fix, but, you know, we're seeing, uh, early traction that would suggest that you know this is a extremely 
important area and problem to fix. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Gospel's solution to that yeah. problem. And kind of, can you describe the customer journey and kind of their experience yeah. using your software? Yeah. So the the solution. So what what happened was I you know, spend a lot of the thousands kind of uh, spending my time transforming large companies' infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So it was really around, you know, through the thousands, we kind of seen, you know, this phenomena of public clouds, AWS. Uh, and I'm very excited to be partnering with Google. They're an amazing public cloud provider, uh, especially as we're going to enterprise. Uh, but what I would say is that that, 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 that transition, uh, it's commoditized infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So where businesses were differentiating on servers or storage or compute, uh, or network performance, that was no longer a, a, a differentiator, the speed of the service or the ability mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, protect. So what we saw was the differentiator in business was the data. Mm -hmm. So my, uh, last venture was really on how do you, uh, you know, uh, assess and, uh, create governance over information when a company wants to change its infrastructure. So they want to, you know, they want to, uh, you know, uh, adopt cloud or they want to move to the latest, fastest flash storage or whatever. So my previous organization was around that transformation. And I was fortunate enough to be acquired by IBM where I went on to run, you know, a $4 billion revenue portfolio of data and storage and data archive and security assets, a lot of the underpinnings of the IBM cloud. And, you know, again, I spent a lot of time talking to customers and they were uh, being challenged with, okay, we want to move outside of our traditional protection, the firewall, the physical security, the data center. We want to move out of this because we want to be able to do trusted transactions in the cloud mm -hmm. with other organizations. And this was in light of increasing regulation like GDPR and CCPA and various specific regulations around uh, sensitive data. Uh, the, the, the problem was with the cloud, they understood the multi-tenancy and the uh, business case. It was this trust problem of if we take our information from these trusted silos because mm -hmm. uh, we control them and put them out into someone else's infrastructure, we put them out into another company to collaborate on, then how can we ensure the integrity, be absolutely certain of the audit and how that content's being used? Uh, so I, I really, like, this started with a pretty clear understanding of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I kind of like left IBM. I kind of noodled on things, read the Satoshi Nakamoto piece, which is 11 years old now, uh, on blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin, uh, which is where some confusion comes in. But the reality was that paper, which is a very easy read, suggested there was an ability to be, be able to create trusted transactions through mathematical consensus. And I, I kind of believe that forget about the application in terms of a currency. Yeah. I thought if I can take this underlying consensus and hashed data architecture, which essentially is what blockchain is, and I can apply it to this challenge of data outside of the traditional perimeter in line with these mega trends of decentralization and data value, then we could have an interesting solution to these problems. Uh, fortunately, I uh, was mentored by an amazing leader at IBM called Marie Week, who now is the, she, she founded IBM Blockchain. She's the general manager over there. And, you know, we talked about creating something called a non-proof-of-work blockchain architecture. So it didn't need huge amounts of power to power consensus. It was much more focused and tight because you had to authenticate to become part of those networks. And, you know, those early conversations with IBM and kind of designing some of what became Hyperledger, uh, you know, that infrastructure gave me enough confidence to think, okay, I'm going to go again. I'm going to build another company. We're going to take this underlying infrastructure. Yes, it's pretty vanilla. We're going to build on it to create a solution to, you know, trusted data 
control protection and storage in these new decentralized models. And uh, that was where we founded Gospel. That was two and a half, two and a half years ago. And this was one of the first oh solutions God, yeah. for enterprise yes. customers. It was. I think that, you know, there's there's the whole like Ethereum and proof of work blockchains that are kind of out there. There's these huge public environments where mm-hmm. you don't need to be authenticated to go in. And, you know, let's, let's, let's say they're struggling, I think, at the moment because mm-hmm. the actual ability to scale them is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concept, this nirvana of, you know, let's change the world through massive disintermediation, I think is almost philosophical in its mm-hmm. approach. I don't know whether it's practical. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, uh, that for me was never the exciting mm-hmm. uh, thing. I'm pretty like boring engineer, I would suggest. I, like, and, and, you know, for me, it was always about this this control within a within a controlled network environment mm-hmm. let's give control to the network as mm-hmm. opposed to a single mm-hmm. actor let's have a log that the network has that can't be retrospectively changed by any single actor and let's use that to accelerate these digital transactions and collaborations mm-hmm. so you know i think that you know early stages of hyperledger we kind of forked off from a lot of that because they believed in transparency and mm-hmm. of the data whereas we believe data is the value so we secure yeah. the data through mm-hmm patented distributed encryption and kind of what we uh, what's our invention i suppose is like a lot of the other blockchain technology was applying the consensus model to the right process so as you mm-hmm. append a new transaction into this environment you have to get consensus to do a pre-state and post-state approved right what gospel's done that's kind of different is uh, and it kind of differentiates us from a lot of the other blockchain technology out there is we apply consensus to the read process. Mm-hmm. So whether we're storing structured data inside Gospel, kind of like a database, a NoSQL database, mm-hmm. or a, or a uh, uh, you know, a Neo4j-like, you know, uh, data structure, which is very much graph-like, or we're encrypting files and hashing them and storing the, the encryption keys within our ledger, uh, you know, what we do is that, that, to, to read and get access to that information, you need to, you know, get the network or the controlled network that's been configured as per the rules mm-hmm. to approve that, that transaction, which means mm-hmm. you have the log, you've got full control, even if your data is on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, interestingly, we were in a pharmaceutical roundtable with a CIO of one of the large pharmaceutical companies, and he was kind of like, it's a little bit like the nuclear keys where they all have to turn the key at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like a very simple analogy. Mm-hmm. Not, that, not that I like the analogy of, nuclear but the weapons but the, i think the point the point was something that's a, of value that you want no single person to or organization to have co- complete control over mm-hmm. we all turn the key at the same time that unlocks that mm-hmm. consensus is mm-hmm. given a approval process which mm-hmm. is hugely aligned with uh you know ethical use of information mm-hmm. ethical access but also these GDPR and other regulations that we're seeing in California and other places mm-hmm. that are starting to take consent, con, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. contextual access security very seriously. Mm-hmm. And in your career and working with enterprise customers, yeah. you knew the the vulnerability of of these of data. What was the cost could be incredibly high, yeah. Yeah. and you came to understanding blockchain in a very organic way and understanding that this could be a solution to these to the, this serious problem, mm. but kind of convincing others to kind of come on board yep. with this solution, especially at the forefront. Mm. Um, how has that been like? Because, you know, sometimes people hear the word blockchain and they immediately are turned off or they think that it means something that it doesn't necessarily mean. Yes. So kind of how have you been working to really change the narrative and, and demonstrate that the, this unique value? Excellent question. And I'm in that battle right now that I don't have an absolute answer that, you know, 
that gives everybody absolute confidence that we can get through this. This is a very early stage of applying a you know cutting edge technology to a very well understood problem, but a problem that hasn't been fixed, but it's extremely sensitive because of the nature of the data and the nature of the businesses we're dealing with. So the app, it's a, it's a it's a dichotomy of you know. Like one of the companies we were talking to yesterday, they're 125 years old. Customers have trusted them for generations. They're not going to risk their reputation or what they do on cutting edge technology. But what I, what my truth and how I kind of get through these difficult years and months, my truth is that the risk of not, mm-hmm. of not mm-hmm. assessing and trying and looking at, uh, you know, fringe and early stage technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the risk of not doing it is too great and it outweighs, uh, you know, you know, the, it outweighs continu- the risk of continuing to do things on it, on existing systems. Mm-hmm. Data breaches occurring, bulk mm-hmm. data breaches. Mm-hmm. People have been increasingly aware of the value of their data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in the last, I think, 12 months, $400 million of GDPR fines. And I know fines don't, that's soft. It doesn't drive business cases, but I think the, the you know, the, the cultural, uh, an ethical view of what's happened around information from a consumer perspective is much more transparent. And from a business perspective, if assets are increasingly becoming digital, then the ability to store and utilize those with trust is a massive differentiator when it comes to speed and competitiveness. So, and, but we're in the very early stages. So, you know, we, you know, we work with Gartner, who is a trusted advisor to a lot of these companies. We won, won, I suppose is an interesting word. We worked very hard to achieve the 2019, uh, blockchain cool vendor award mm-hmm. where they really cut through a lot of the, uh, BS in this space and really mm-hmm. got to the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. what is the problem this technology is fixing and how has it been applied? You know, how far ahead is the IP? That's, uh, you know, real validation. Yeah, I think we're at the point now where we spent a lot of time this year kind of talking about the technology, uh, and it was long implementation cycles. We were, uh, back in August, we partnered with Google Cloud, uh, to massively accelerate the deployment of our technology. We, uh, now you can deploy Gospel three node environment for secure trusted data security, uh, sharing in 15 minutes on Google Cloud. We built it in Kubernetes, which is a phenomenal technology to accelerate some of the complex implementation. So, you know, my, my kind of view is my truth has been around, you know, explaining we're at a point uh, of digital pressure that organizations, the risk of not doing something mm-hmm. is greater than the risk mm-hmm. of starting to look at new technologies, whether it be AI, ML, you know, gospel. Uh, and I think that we are seeing a tipping point, certainly at the mm-hmm. CIO level. Mm-hmm. One of our phenomenal board advisors, Kimberly Hammonds, was on, she was the group CIO at Boeing. So a very staid organization dealing with very sensitive data. She's yeah. joined us and she's supporting a lot of our narrative on how to work with enterprises. But I would say the one killer thing that we've found is, is actually get to the people who are struggling with the problem, yeah. the practitioners, the developers. And we have a phenomenal guy who actually came from Google called Gus Muscovitz. He's a DevRel leader. And, you know, we're really meeting customers where the problem exists mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. fine doing presentations and podcasts for CIOs, mm-hmm. but the problems manifesting itself where organizations are trying to collaborate on sensitive data, sharing patient mm-hmm. records, information, mm-hmm. a lot of it's being done very badly. Yeah. And uh, what we're finding our best traction and uh, our best source of learning 
are that customer centric approach of, okay, let's just get, a, get this technology in the hands of people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, these practitioners, the da- data architects, the developers, they're going to cut through and they're going to find, uh, the, the, you know, what, what is real and what is not. And that gives our ability to double down on what's working and, you know, cut out some of the things that we may have intuitively thought were valuable, maybe weren't. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, for, for any organizations who's very serious about applying new technology, you've got to look at the influencers. Gartners, they're a serious organization. We're very trusted by a lot of organi- mm-hmm. you know, large enterprises. And they're very conservative, right? They don't yeah. check out this stuff every minute. And then there is getting to the people who've really got the problem. It's mm-hmm. fine. You know, I spent t- you know, eight day months having fantastic CIO meetings about you know, improving data governance and security and better digital collaboration. Uh, but where we really started to find traction was getting to the data architects and developers who were struggling on a daily basis of fixing this. How do we retain control over this valuable information? Mm-hmm. How do we uh, protect our CIO from going to jail on a huge data breach of our customer or our partner data? And how do we ensure that we're leveraging cloud and AI uh, mm-hmm. on data sets that maybe traditionally wouldn't have got access to? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, I think that finishing 2019, it's really been about easing the access to the technology and mm-hmm. better uh, articulating the actual business value from those learnings. Right. And, and, incur- and kind of making this point of being brave to try oh, a yeah. new technology. Yeah. So it can be really tough and really hard, especially with these legacy companies and big yeah, businesses. This, it, it, it can. There are, I, we have found a number of CIOs and chief data officers, uh, who are phenomenally receptive to new technology. And I think that, that they're acutely aware that, you know, to, to really move their businesses forward and stay competitive. Mm-hmm. They need to uh, realize this huge, you know, uh, uh, change in the market as, you know, just, uh, just in the pharmaceutical conversation we had yesterday, it was around, okay, Google have just acquired Fitbit, right? You know, that's going to have a phenomenal amount of, uh, you know, yeah, right. You got one on. So that's collecting data about your heart rate as we speak. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if that data starts to get sh- uh, shared with insurance companies, then you have this ethical moral of, well, if they know something about you and your health that's problematic, improves, you know, increases your insurance premium, do you really want to be sharing that information? So like gospel's not about consumer data, but what we're seeing is this new wave. There's huge amounts of data out there, but there's also many greenfield use cases where we have sensitive data that needs to be handled better with a decentralized architecture, mm-hmm. with giving the data owner control or at least a level of consensual control and visibility into what's happening with that information. Mm-hmm. And I think if you know businesses who and services who start to be transparent about that information and data, uh, like using technology like gospel that cannot be retrospectively hacked or changed or edited because you're part of that network, mm-hmm. uh, I think will differentiate themselves, uh, in the consumer's eyes as well as the, the security of business relationships, certainly in the next 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're really at the beginning of this like global conversation about understanding the value of data. Yeah. Um, even from enterprise, but down to the consumer level. It, I mean, for these pharmaceutical customers, they understand the, mm. the challenge and the risk there. But I think companies lower down, down to startups don't necessarily know mm. the value and the worth mm. of that data and why security is so important. It's, I, I've seen a lot of it in the last 48 hours. I mean, I've focused on, I mean, this is an amazing investment. I actually haven't spoke to a single investor, which, uh, you know, I've spoke to customers and spoke to uh, a lot of automotive, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, aerospace. And, uh, you know, the ability to unlock 
ML models, the ability to use information about their customers to better improve the services they're delivering, whether it be new methods of mobility in cars or better position of aircraft services on airplane. Like all of this is now really coming to the fore of data driven application to innovate in the services we delivered. My, my view is that, you know, uh, all organizations are now collaborating. There's networks of data and collaboration that aren't persistent. They're temporary or transient, but those transient networks of data sharing and access need to be controlled, uh, shared with trust, and they need to be digital and auditable. And with those elements, I think that those digital networks can appear, uh, operate, produce an outcome, uh, have an audit trail that can never be changed and close down or be, you know, it's, it isn't, this isn't about building a global, you know, skynet of information. It's mm. gospels very much around focusing on, you know, these networks of organizations who are sharing sensitive information and just fixing that problem. Because, you know, the amount of organizations we go into that are still emailing spreadsheets, point to point SFTP mm. connections, their, you know, their, their data environments are siloed. You know, we saw a phenomenal and, and we're one of our investors, Salesforce, uh, in fact, we were the first blockchain investment by Salesforce because they identified, you know, this need to connect data. And I, I kind of feel the first generation of that was the MuleSoft API connectivity mm-hmm. layer where mm-hmm. what you're saying is we're going to create this open exchange of API data. Uh, but what, you know, and, and that's a phenomenal leap forward because it kind of interprets the language of different applications. What that kind of misses the gospel has and what I see is this next generation is where even though the data is kind of being sent or being consumed, the owner still has control and visibility into how that data is being uh, consumed in real time, and they can withdraw access with a log that can show you know compliance that that information and access is still being controlled. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, look, this is a very exciting space. It's very diverse. Uh, you know, we're probably focused on one of the less exciting uh, infrastructure en- enabling business use cases but it's it's very real and we have you know early stage and you know these early adopters who are seeing phenomenal value from our technology uh my you know i'm always questioning myself as a ceo you know i want to move everybody wants to move quicker everybody wants to move faster but sometimes you know what i've learned is that you know maybe we just need to slow down and kind of be a bit more reflective of the rate in which these organizations and kind of the world changes mm-hmm. uh, or you just spend a phenomenal amount of energy you know trying to pull a market ahead which is ultimately only going to go at the pace of you know the realization of the value and the understanding of the actual risk of not doing something different so so in some ways we're really at the tip of the iceberg and when it comes to this technology and the landscape is is really wide open for um, new operators in this oh, space. yeah I, I I mean my I I firmly believe in uh, more innovation and startups and clever people uh, and you know, clever teams applying themselves to these problems because they're real problems. They exist right now. Uh, and, you know, to, just to see that the, the, the energy here is super exciting. I mean, are we, our, some of our team are out at Dreamforce, which is a phenomenal event in California. But my, my feeling, this kind of Scandi vibe mm-hmm. and this intimacy that's kind of mm-hmm. happening here at Slush, I, mm-hmm. I kind of, there's something about it that really kind of, you know, excites me and, and gives me, you know, optimism mm-hmm. about some of the very, very clever and innovative things that are coming out, especially Europe. You yeah. know, we should be very proud and of that. It's such a, a special event. But in closing, before we yes. go, I have to ask you, um, Gospel, the name, where did it come oh. from? What does it mean to you? Yeah, look, you know, 
it has no religious connotations. It's gospel truth. And I, you know, I, I worry that, you know, we don't want to, uh, you know, there's no offense or any of these things. You know, gospel was really for me about, you know, looking for an absolute truth in a complicated environment, mm-hmm. in a world where, you know, information is being shared, distributed, used maliciously or accidentally lost and breached. It's very complex. And for me, it was about how do we build a truth? Because with truth, you can trust. Yeah. And, and if we can build a truth across organizations, geographies, business processes, then that trust uh, means manual intervention can be taken out because we've got the trust and verification in the system. Yeah. So it was very much about, you know, uh, the truth and the trust that a system like ours can enable. Wonderful. I and I think that is- that's a, a great point to leave it on. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you so and, much. Um, great speaking with you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Now it is time to wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andre at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Audio engineering for this podcast is, as usual, done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and talk to you in our next episode on Monday. Bye-bye.